0: Join us on Archetypes, a dynamic podcast hosted by Megan, the Duchess of Sussex, as she digs into the labels that try to hold women back. In each intimate and candid conversation, Megan is joined by guests like Serena Williams, Mariah Carey, Paris Hilton, Issa Rae, and Trevor Noah as they delve into the roots of countless common descriptors of women, like diva, crazy, dumb blonde, and the B-word, and redefine and reclaim each identity along the way. The complete season of Archetypes is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and guess what? I've got a podcast. It's called Wiser Than Me. And each week, I get schooled on life by women who are older and, yes, wiser than me. Older women are this country's biggest untapped natural resource, and I want to hear from them. I want to know what they've learned by living 70 or 80 or 85 years. Jane Fonda, Darlene Love, Isabel Allende, and many more. Subscribe and get wise. Wiser than me. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Lemonada.
1: Just a brief program note before we begin our episode, just a couple of hours after we recorded our episode, news broke of another school shooting in our country, this time in Uvalde, Texas, only about 80 miles west of San Antonio, where I am. At latest reports, a gunman killed 19 children and two adults in Robb Elementary School there in Uvalde. The news is heartbreaking and terrifying and a parent's worst nightmare. It's also a very powerful reminder of how much our democracy has failed to keep children like those in Uvalde, adults like those we saw last week in Buffalo, and so many others who have been felled by gun violence safe. It's infuriating because we know what we should do about this problem, a uniquely American problem, a problem associated with too many guns, too easily in the hands of people who shouldn't have them. We know what we should do. We know the common sense gun reforms that would make a difference in making our community safer. But politicians in Washington, DC, particularly truth be told in the Republican party have failed to act Almost a decade ago, we lost 26 children at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown. And after that, many of us believed that we would see change, that the death of 26 children would cause the politicians in Washington, D.C. who had been standing in the way of common sense gun reform, who had been listening to the NRA lobby for too long that it would cause them to have a change of heart and do their jobs. And it didn't in the decades since not much has changed. It's heartbreaking to think that this could be the same thing. If there's hope that we're going to make change this time, it rests in the power of all of us to use our voices, to cast our ballots, to make sure that our democracy works the way that it should. That instead of the powerful corporate interests of the gun lobby having the louder voice, that we, the people, have the loudest voice through our elected officials to take these steps we know are necessary to keep our children safe, our families safe. Sadly, we've seen mass shooting after mass shooting after mass shooting. I'd like to say that this isn't who we are as Americans, but it is but it's not who we have to be. Each of us can step up in our own small way and change that. Hey there, I'm Julian Castro. And I'm Sawyer Hackett. And welcome to Our America, This week, we're talking about the primaries taking place in Texas this week, the latest on Title 42, and President Biden's latest approval numbers as we look ahead to the general election in November of 2022. We'll also welcome Gustavo Velasquez, our former HUD colleague and now director of the California Department of Housing and Community Development, to talk about the innovative ways in which his agency is tackling the state's housing crisis. But first, let's dig into this week's primary election in Texas. Sawyer, what's the latest on that front?
2: Yeah, first up front, we should say that we're uh, recording this episode on Tuesday, so voters are heading to the polls right now as we speak to uh, to cast their ballots, but, you know, uh, the podcast is going to come out on Wednesday, so we'll get to see how our how our predictions fare. Uh, you but, mean you don't have a crystal
1: ball that you can just yeah. tell us ahead of time so we don't have to waste the night tonight, you know, right. waiting for this stuff? To...
2: Right, exactly. But yeah, voters are, uh, are heading to the polls in Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, and Texas, uh, races that have a lot of, you know, big implications. For both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, In Texas, there's a primary runoff for lieutenant governor that pits incumbent Ken Paxton against. George P. Bush, and in Texas 28th District, incumbent Henry Cuellar faces a runoff with progressive challenger Jessica Cisneros. Uh, Cuellar is a nine-term incumbent who has taken a number of stances against the Democratic Party, most notably attacking Democrats on the issue of immigration uh, and serving as the lone anti-choice Democrat left in the Democratic caucus. He was the only Democrat to vote against the Women's Health Protection Act, which would have codified Roe into law. Uh, Obviously, that issue has gotten a lot of attention in recent weeks after the Supreme Court. Leak showing that they would soon strike down Roe. Quayar has the backing of Democratic leadership. Despite that, uh, you know, position, Speaker Pelosi and Whip Clyburn have both been running ads for him in the district. Uh, He's also received millions in dark money contributions from APAC uh, and from the billionaire founder of LinkedIn. Uh, Jessica Cisneros is a former immigration attorney who narrowly lost to Cuellar in twenty twenty. She's, you know, obviously a pro-choice candidate and has focused her campaign mostly on on working families, you know, fifteen dollar minimum wage, quality health care, a more humane immigration system. But this one uh, this one is a big test for for Texans, Julian. How are you uh, how are you feeling down there in Texas?
1: Well, you know, I spoke to a couple of folks uh, over the last few days who are down in the Laredo area and They feel like right now the race is Jessica's to lose Mm. that especially after the news about the Supreme Court's uh, likely decision on Roe uh, as well as the cloud that was over Henry Cuellar after the FBI announced its investigation. You know, it's unclear now where that is at, whether he was a target or not. I think his lawyer said he's not a target. But at any rate, even after that announcement, a couple of months back, he seemed to you know take a blow and then stabilize, and the conventional wisdom had become that he may well survive mm-hmm. and then we had that news about roe, and it wasn't just you know although the issue of abortion is is a big part of this, but it's almost like just energized that coalition behind Jessica. And what we'll have to see is whether that translates into enough turnout in what usually would be a pretty low turnout runoff primary election um, for this 28th congressional district. But right now, at least, seems like she has the momentum. And if I were a betting man and you made me bet, uh, I would say probably that she's going to win. But I think it's going to be close.
2: Yeah. And it feels like, you know, all eyes are, are on Texas right now. Congress is out of session. President Biden is traveling abroad. You know, this is kind of the big race in the Democratic Party kind of pitting a progressive challenger against a very centrist, you know, corporate type incumbent. There's been a lot of drama in this race because there's been a ton of outside spending. I mean, mostly on Quayar's behalf, some of these dark money groups like APAC, which aren't running ads, you know, in support of Israel or anything like that, but but sort of smearing Jessica with these weird mailers that are saying that she's a home oh, and-
1: yeah that I think that's gonna backfire on him just to give folks background they put up a billboard and then did I think mailers and maybe other uh, literature that labeled her a home wrecker accusing her of uh, breaking up a marriage by having an affair with somebody uh, when she was much younger uh, just this weird wild stuff and this personal attack that these from the folks that i talked to down there and also here in san antonio because part of the district includes the south side of san antonio and part of the east side that seems to be backfiring on Cuellar.
2: well not to mention like we don't know who ran those ads like it's still not clear who paid for them and the campaign hasn't disavowed them and but they haven't condoned them necessarily um but they it they put out this pamphlet, like they almost sent a newspaper to people's houses. Looks like a real newspaper. It says like the border report or something like that. And in there, it says like Quayle was not the subject of this FBI investigation. He yeah, was he was cleared, the, and which and is not true. Is the
1: worst thing to ever come through this these parts. And yeah, I mean, then that's an old trick. I mean, I remember that when I was coming up in local politics, like they basically creating something that looks like a voter guide or newspaper that's just giving information. And really what it is, is it's a smear campaign. And that's what they've done against Jessica. And Folks, we had Jessica on the program mm-hmm. um, a couple of months back. I mean, she's a good candidate. She's intelligent. She's accomplished. She's of the district. She's grown up, you know, with hardworking parents in that Laredo area, made good for herself by getting an education, became the first in her family to become a professional as an attorney. Uh, She can relate to a lot of the folks who live in South Texas. And that's why I think, in addition to the circumstances that Guayat finds himself in, that's why I think they're running scared. The other thing I heard, uh, for instance, uh, when I talked to folks was that Guevara's campaign was giving the Cisneros campaign a hard time on, like, where they're campaigning at, what spots they're trying to campaign at, and anytime you get that in like retail politics, what it is is it's usually a campaign that is afraid, and so they're trying to do every little thing they can to intimidate the other side into not getting their vote out, or it's it's just sort of this it's this frenetic energy out of that comes out of insecurity. Right, and that's what I—that's what I'm hearing about the Cuellar campaign. Look, when we get the results tonight, it may be the case that somehow this guy has found a way to to eke out a victory. I mean, his down in Webb County, down in Laredo, uh, his family is very well known. His brother was a sheriff. They have been in business down there, uh, part of the community for a long time. We know, you and I know, and a lot of our listeners know that. You know, famous statistic that like 96 or 98% of incumbents get reelected in Congress, right? So it's always hard to take down an incumbent, but I have to say that I I believe that she can do it and that she's going to do that tonight. Well, and it's it's an interesting race because
2: I feel like Jessica, I don't want to use the word lucky, but she's had a couple big things that have changed the dynamic of that race. I mean, I think going into it, she was not favored to win this race, but she's had, you know, Cuellar have his house and offices raided by the FBI, which, you know, threw a huge wrench into this race. And then this Roe decision, which Henry Cuellar is the lone anti-choice Democrat left in the caucus. Um, And I want to talk a little bit about that part because that part is just galling to me that right now, you know, you have Democratic leaders. I saw Nancy Pelosi on Morning Joe this morning talking about how this, you know, decrying this decision, this attack on reproductive rights and all of these things. At the same time, they're lining up behind Henry Cuellar, you know, who has voted against the Women's Health Protection Act, you know, has taken oil money and and private prison money. And it's just so galling to me that it, it. that leadership would get behind somebody like this at a time when we know for a fact this may be our most potent issue heading into the midterms. They want to stand behind the lone anti-choice Democrat, a guy who has consistently bucked the party, consistently stood in the way of passing the president's agenda. It's just it's crazy to me that that this is happening. Um, but it also is a huge boon, I think, to Jessica.
1: Yeah, I mean, things have worked out her way. I mean, there is a certain amount of luck. Of course, you got you to gotta put yourself in the position to be able to take advantage of the luck, right? True. Uh, and Quayat is somebody that uh, has breezed past any opposition that he had in the past. He's running for a 10th uh, consecutive term in Congress. So, you know, she, I think she has a lot going for her, the circumstances, and then just what she brings to the table, was, which is substantial. It was disappointing, to see leadership line up behind uh, Henry Cuellar. Uh, But I think, as I mentioned on MSNBC a couple days ago to Mehdi Hassan, when we were talking about, he asked about the reluctance of some Democrats, especially top Democrats, to specifically call out by name people like Elise Stefanik and other Republicans who are embracing this great replacement or white replacement theory Going down the road of white supremacy, I said that collegiality is a strong impulse. Yeah. And a lot of times these folks won't take on somebody in the same body, much less an incumbent of their own party. And Guayad has you know, raised a lot of money over the years for uh, the DCCC. Uh, he, he knows how to play the institutional politics very well. I mean, he's, I think, the second... Ranking member on the Appropriations Committee. Uh, if you got to give him something, it's that he knows how to play his game of politics with his brand. Now that's not my brand of politics, yeah. But he knows how to play his game, and he's been playing it for a long time. And you know that's reaped some dividend.
2: Any uh, any reflections you have on on the other big race in Texas, this Attorney General race uh, between you know the indicted Ken Paxton and the uh, forgotten
1: member of the Bush family? Yeah. Oh man. I mean. So George P. Bush was once the darling and uh, the biggest rising star in Texas politics. He was going to be the next governor of Texas. And then from then, it was just a hop, skip and a jump like his uncle, George W., to become the president. And all of that was before Trump totally annihilated Jeb Bush and turned it into MAGA country in, in the United States and here in Texas. And now he finds himself several points behind a guy who for the last seven years has been facing an indictment or maybe a couple of them um, for potential criminal activity. It looks like he's going to lose. And uh, to me, it's just another example of how far off the rails these Republicans have gone. Uh, No longer are they trying to, you know, herald somebody like George P Bush that is part uh, Latino, that could be a bridge to the 40% of Texas that is Latino um, and is younger and speaks to sort of the future, you know, I mean, compared to Ken Paxton, they're like done with that. And they're done with the dynasty of the Bushes. And a lot of people have just turned against that name and him because of what they think he represents old establishment, Republican, non MAGA, uh, what they would see probably as sellout, uh, elite politics. So, you know, but l- given this, give George P Bush this, like they're trying to throw the kitchen sink at it to win. Uh, he's gotten millions of dollars from the Bush family network, including a hundred thousand dollars from former president George W. Bush personally here at the end, they're on TV all the time. Uh, they, you know, he's, he's outright calling Paxton basically a criminal. John Cornyn, the other senator from Texas, uh, along with Ted Cruz, I think Ted Cruz, I want to say has stayed out of it, but Cornyn made some disparaging comments the other day about Ken Paxton. So the the, the establishment Republicans are all piling on at the end to try and save George P. Bush. And we'll see whether they can do it or not tonight. Well, it'll be interesting, and, and folks
2: should stay tuned to uh, Julian's Twitter and to MSNBC where he'll he'll be covering some of these races. So, uh, the other major issue in this race uh, in in the Texas 28th district has been the issue of Title 42, uh, which you know Henry Cuellar has been a proponent of for some reason. But on Friday, last Friday, a Trump appointed judge in Louisiana blocked the Biden administration from ending Title 42, which is this Trump era policy that was used that used the pandemic essentially to suspend the entire. U.S. asylum system. Uh, Title 42 has been in place ever since, you know, weaponized essentially to block more than 1.7 million people from making an asylum claim, despite zero evidence that that it's needed to protect public health. Uh, in early April, the Biden administration finally announced that they would terminate the order saying it's no longer necessary. But But now this judge has blocked it. The border has seen some increases in border crossings uh, and arrests in recent weeks, despite the order not being lifted yet, but many expect those numbers to to spike even higher when, when it is lifted. And, you know, the issue has sort of seeped into politics in recent weeks as well. You know, a number of Democrats in these vulnerable races have have joined Republicans to, you know, condemn the Biden administration for for lifting uh, Title 42, wary of the politics of immigration, I think. Uh, And Republicans have hammered the administration uh, on the issue. And now they're holding up a COVID relief bill to try and force Democrats into codifying Title 42 into law. Uh, But Julian, you know, I feel like you and I spent you know, half a year, more a year, uh, you know, shouting into the void on this issue, you know, calling on the administration to end this policy because we knew that, that there would be a surge when it was lifted. Uh, you know, now they're dealing with the political ramifications of of continuing its abuse. What do you make of the latest on this, on the politics and just of the process itself?
1: I, I mean, there's just like disappointment uh, and frustration all around. It's ironic that you have a judge in Louisiana Uh, who has handed down an opinion that puts a stop nationally across the board to the lifting of Title 42 uh, because these Republicans always rail on about activist judges. That's exactly what we're seeing here. It's what we're seeing with the overturning of Roe v. Wade at the Supreme Court level. Um, These conservatives play politics uh, in the judiciary. That's what is going on here with Title 42. Um, it's disappointing because, as you and I have talked about on the show before, the Biden administration never should have taken this long in the first place. Look, th- the political heat just got hotter and hotter and hotter, and that's why it it even spilled over into Democrats essentially calling for Title 42 to stay in place because we're so close to the elections. Yeah, And people start playing their political games. Uh, The Republicans were always going to do it on this issue. But now some Democrats and not a small number of Democrats are engaging in this theater also basically trying to show their concern for the border and, you know, quote unquote border security by pretending like Title 42 is an effective or even a lawful way to keep people out of the country and not have to deal with the natural processing of claims for asylum i guess the only silver lining is that the biden administration says that they're going to appeal this and perhaps they'll get a different result at the fifth circuit or at the supreme court but you know i doubt it and this thing is probably going to be around at least until 2023 the other scary part of this is that the way these federal judges are interpreting different provisions of the law and different administrative or regulatory uh, decisions, it means that it's going to take years and years to unravel what a president and his administration or her administration does. Mm -hmm. And that can benefit Democrats sometimes, right? But with what Trump did on immigration, passing like a thousand different types of executive administrative orders To screw up the system and to frustrate the ability of uh, a lot of, frankly, black and brown people to try and claim asylum, that's going to be haunting us for years to come. Well, and just so folks
2: know, I mean, in a normal process, not under Title 42, when you are deported... It's something that is stamped into your record, and it, it's something that they know and, and document. You have to go through the due process of sitting in a court proceeding and, and having that deportation order carried out under Title Forty Two. There is no deportation order. There's no record of it. There's no due process. You don't. Ha- you're not able to make an asylum claim. So it essentially it creates this incentivization for people to come back because there's no there's no reason like you you wouldn't be harmed under the law for seeking an asylum again. So it, it creates this kind of like. Revolving door of people coming back into the country. And so, of course, when you bottleneck the immigration system from 1.7 million people from seeking asylum, of course, there's going to be a huge surge when that's lifted because they're all going to come back to try and get that asylum. And, you know, the disappointing part here is like, yeah, these judges, like, you have a judge here protecting a pandemic public health order. At the same time, you have another judge on the other side, like, striking down mask mandates. Like, these judges just get to sort of pick and choose whatever they want to do. And they're just playing the politics of this to hurt Democrats. They're not actually, they don't care about public health. And the way that he ruled on this order was Title 42 didn't require a comment and notice period in the rulemaking, which is, you know, for folks who don't know, like in D.C., when you don't pass a law, when you pass rules, it has to go through a public comment period, meaning the public can can sort of play into the process of how these rules are made. uh, And it takes time to implement them. But he said that they have to go through that period to rescind Title 42. Yeah. So it's going to take months and months of this thing. And eventually, you're going to have Title 42 codified into law in that we won't have an asylum system anymore. I mean, that's kind of the future that we're headed towards. I mean,
1: and I think, Sawyer, like, people lost sight of this. Title 42, the way that Title 42 is used to shut down the ability of people to make their asylum claims, basically, for a lot of—not everybody. There are some exceptions— Ukrainians, for instance, yeah. and a couple of other exceptions. And and they, look, they should be able to make their claims, but so should everybody else that feels like they have an asylum claim. But this was never the norm. This was the crazy bullshit, racist stuff that Trump and Stephen Miller, uh, you know, dreamt up and did to try and stifle any kind of changing uh, you know what, they saw is like this, they saw then they believed in this great replacement theory and any kind of changing demographic, they wanted to stifle that. Uh, and it had never been used before like that. And a lot of times in the conversation, you would think that this was the default, mm-hmm. and not only that, as I've pointed out before. Even if you were concerned, of course, everybody's concerned about public health, but there was never evidence of any kind of significant outbreak of COVID among these um, asylum seekers. And even if there had been or there were, there are better ways, more effective ways to deal with it, testing, quarantining, uh, and so forth. Yeah, yeah, vaccinating. You can deal with that. You don't need to take this sledgehammer of a solution, if you want to call it that, that was Title Forty Two. Yeah, it's disappointing, and it feels like
2: you know we move the Overton window on immigration so far to the right that you know now have mainstream Democrats championing a Stephen Miller policy that suspends in- yeah. the entire asylum system. It's really, it's really sad, but. Um, You know, before we go to break, the the last thing we wanted to touch on was this latest latest bit of polling uh, on President Biden's approval. I I think we should focus on the AP poll, because I think that's probably the most notable poll out there. But they had a poll late last week that showed uh, Biden at a 39 percent approval rating, which is the lowest in that poll's history for Biden. Two in 10 adults say that the U.S. is heading in the right direction or that the economy is doing well. Uh, So that's really, really dreary numbers. But I think the most shocking part of this poll to me was his approval among Democrats sitting at just seventy three uh, percent, which is a significant drop. It's never gone below eighty two percent. His approval with voters under forty five sitting at thirty percent, with millennials and Gen Z voters at twenty six percent, and his approval with non white voters at forty three percent. I mean, really, just bad numbers. And, and these are these have been the same seen the same sort of numbers out of uh, News Nation, Decision Desk. CBS News, Harvard-Harris poll just in the last couple of weeks. So, you know, the economy continues to be a drag on Biden. Russia continues to be a drag on Biden. Inflation, all of these things, despite the strong job market, despite COVID, um, you know, improving in many ways. Like, what do you make of this polling? What do you think it, it portends for Democrats?
1: Well, I mean, it has a lot of people quaking in their boots. Uh, folks who have their re-election campaigns fired up and... Um, running in districts that may be marginally Democratic, Uh, Democrats concerned that if these numbers don't improve for Biden, that that's going to mean that we lose control of the House and the Senate. And hey, look, if you're just a neutral observer and you're observing this a few months before November, I mean, what other conclusion is there to draw except that this, this looks like a terrible cycle that we're headed into? There's still a lot of time. And the administration and the president himself are taking steps to try and uh, turn things around, whether it's on inflation or this Operation Fly formula and other measures to increase the supply of baby formula out there, or the measures that he's taken to try and lower gas prices. I mean, they're, they're trying. It didn't help that you had Joe Manchin uh, who was there as a roadblock for some of the bigger ticket investments that we could have made that I think would have made people feel like we're making real progress on any number of issues. But yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to watch uh, because you you see what's on the other side of this and you see all of the craziness and the embrace of white supremacy Uh, And you wonder, like, how in the hell are these people even still competitive when you have Rick Scott, the senator from Florida, going on Face the Nation this past Sunday? And they ask him, you know, would you tell, so would you tell your colleagues to disavow white supremacy? And he won't even say, yeah, I would tell him that. I mean, can't even give a damn straight answer to that. That's how, that's how scary the place is that they're going. Yeah. Yeah. And we're still in a situation where it looks like they may have, Republicans may have a strong night in November. I do want to bring up though that there was polling by NPR Marist a few days ago that looked at the generic ballot, which asked the question that, you know, would you you planning on supporting Democrats or Republicans for Congress and democratic support had moved up two points since the last time they polled a couple of months ago, or maybe a few weeks ago. And I think it was like 47, 42 in favor of Democrats. And so they were winning by five points. That's encouraging. And the conclusion that uh, one of the conclusions that the folks at NPR and Marist drew was that perhaps the news of Roe uh, and the impending decision was having an effect to energize Democratic voters and bring them home. Yeah. Hopefully that's it, the
2: case. I think it showed something like 64% of Americans oppose overturning Roe, which is which is the highest it's been in the polls history. So I think yeah, it's showing that Democrats have a huge opportunity on that issue to sort of rebound support. Um at the same time, um the Biden administration has sort of rolled out their midterm message. They're they're calling it like trying to label people as MAGA Republicans using like ultra MAGA mm-hmm. and and you know, there's some data showing I think that that works, but I think the issue here is is just a messaging problem, right? Like we have Republicans trying to ban books. You have them trying to punish these private companies for, for speaking out against them. You have, uh, you know, Republican Senator Mike Braun from Indiana saying that we should look at interracial marriage like as a, as a statute of law, whether that should exist anymore. Um, you know, you have these attacks on abortion rights. You have all of these things and it, we just wonder like why are we losing this messaging war? And to me, yeah. it's, it's that we have this kind of older guard of, of democratic leadership at, in the establishment, both in the white house and in Congress who are in charge of our message, who just don't know how to reach people at this time. Like it's, it's really concerning. I really hope that abortion, um, you know, they, they pull their messaging together on that, but you know, we talked about it earlier. They're out there stumping for Henry Cuellar at a time when abortion seems to be our best issue for the messaging heading into the midterm. Well, I so, mean,
1: and take that as just a quick example. Uh, we've got to go to break in a second, but in the henry Cuad race Cuad has had to go on english and spanish language media and state in no uncertain terms that he does not support a full ban on abortion right that he supports at least exceptions you know for the case of the life of the mother or rape or incest now i mean you know that's a small comfort in terms of policy but even he down there in the heavily Catholic, heavily Latino, 28th Congressional District has had to go and, and separate himself, has had to go and disavow the position of what is now the mainstream Republican Party. That tells you something about how powerful that issue can be if you do it well, you know, for Democrats, if you message it well. They need to think about that.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think... This is a time to sort of reset the message, especially after these primaries. You know, we're seeing progressives, you know, beat incumbents in these races, um, incumbents who stood in the way of, of President Biden's agenda, stood in the way of, of progressive policy. Um, it's a time, I think, for, for establishment Democrats to take a hard look in the mirror.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, uh, you know, there's still some time left to do that. After the break, we're going to have a conversation with Gustavo Velazquez, our former colleague, at the Department of Housing and Urban Development, who is now in Sacramento as the director of the California Department of Housing and Community Development. When you think of a state that faces an affordable housing crisis uh, and homelessness challenge, you know I think of California first, unfortunately. Uh, we're gonna talk to Gustavo about ways they're trying to solve uh, that crisis.
0: can't get enough of your favorite Lemonada Media podcasts? By subscribing to Lemonada Premium today, you'll gain access to fun and inspiring bonus content from all of our podcasts across the Lemonada Media network. As a subscriber, you can listen to never-before-heard interview excerpts, behind-the-scenes segments, and continue to uncover new ways to make life suck less through all of our exclusive subscriber audio. Check out a free trial of Lemonada Premium today in the Apple Podcast app by clicking on our podcast logo and then the subscribe button. Last Day is a show about the moments that change us. I just don't think I will ever get used to this. I'm Stephanie Wittleswax and I have had one of these moments. We all have. So let's unpack the chaos that is our human existence together. I don't believe things happen for a reason. I don't believe the universe has a plan. Each week, I sit down with a new guest to explore happy, sad stories of transformation.
3: It's leaning far, far into the pain. That's what it is.
0: Listen to Last Day wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome back to our America. This portion of the episode is in partnership with the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which is committed to building a more inclusive, just, and healthy future for everyone. Gustavo Velasquez has served as the director of the California Department of Housing and Community Development since 2020. Soria and I actually worked with Gustavo at HUD during the Obama administration, uh, from 2014 until early 2017, where he was an assistant secretary in the Office of Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity, uh, which is HUD's primary fair housing watchdog. And so it's great to have you uh, on the podcast, Gustavo. Obviously a big fan of the work that you did at HUD, particularly on programs like Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing, which I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on. Um, but I wanted to start off by just asking you. Give us a sense of the approach that y'all are taking to the housing crisis in California and the homelessness crisis in California, because uh, anybody who's read, you know, even just a little bit about housing knows that you have one of the biggest challenges in the whole nation there in California. Like if you had to summarize the approach y'all are taking, you know, in a sentence or two, what is it?
3: Just a couple of things to give you a better sense. Uh, and thank you for the invitation. It's great to be here. Of what we're currently facing, um, California's housing supply has been persistently well behind what we need. And housing and rental costs are out of control. Of course, a global pandemic has not helped matters. These are problems that, Secretary, as you know, stab at the livelihoods of ordinary Californians trying to find affordable housing and juggling to pay for a roof over their heads or meet other basic needs and these are issues that are not unique to california but like most other things when california is the home of nearly 40 million people largest economy most populous uh, state in the nation fifth largest economy in the world problems like this become more amplified when you're talking this at a, at a very large scale so in a nutshell what we know is what we need to create 2.5 million new homes between now and year 2030. Most of these homes have to be created to serve those with very low and low incomes. We need to also make sure that housing is created in a way that meets our climate goals that are always accelerating and meeting this housing with equity goals. We have a very uneven landscape when it comes to meeting the housing needs of people of color, minorities, tribal communities. Uh, And so it's a number of things at a very large scale to meet um, the very disproportionately effect that housing cost, And because of that, the crisis of homelessness represents here in the state. Well,
1: and you mentioned that y'all are about 2.5 2.5 million homes short in supply. Uh, and of course, that doesn't happen overnight. That's happened over
3: decades. Why has California fallen so short over the years? This issue was largely ignored for many, many years. I think uh, state leaders now recognize that the state should have acted Uh, with more urgency much earlier. And by me much earlier, it's really 25, 30 years ago when homelessness was increasing in California, when housing costs started rising. And, you know, if you ignore these issues, we're going to see over many, many years, a shortage in supply that is going to accelerate costs. You know, housing is a Basic needs is a human rights. Everyone needs a place to call home. And when there is little of it, uh, cost uh, is going to rise uh, precipitously. And that's what we've seen. And obviously, California's had enjoyed a very strong economy for the last 25 years. Many people coming into California to, you know, serve in many, many industries, technology, services, hospitality. And you know, just uh, the increase in population, the increase in jobs uh, caused this influx of people. And just the state for many, many years was not acting with the urgency to create the housing that was needed.
2: So, Gustavo, over the weekend, the uh, the New York Times reported that Americans who own their homes have gained more than $6 trillion in wealth. Uh, but you know, housing has grown at this incredible rate over the pandemic. But a lot of people are pointing to the fact that that seems to be also an indicator of this shortfall uh, in, in housing affordability. You know, more than seven million rental homes uh, were lacking at the moment. What what do you see as the biggest barrier to, to more to building more affordable housing in California right now?
3: Well, uh, the problem is only getting worse with the inflation that our country is experiencing. We have uh, labor shortages. We have cost of materials and supply problems increasing. Just lumber, just lumber uh, being such a key commodity to build housing has increased more than 25% in the last six months. So obviously, when you have labor and materials representing more than 70% of the cost of creating housing, that's going to be a major, major issue. And of course, we have communities that continue to be anti-growth, you know. California is a very progressive state. We pride ourselves to be at the cutting edge of innovation on many things. There is that saying that where uh, California goes, the country goes. So we we certainly um, see a lot of policies that spur that is, are intended to spur the creation of housing, especially affordable housing. But we still have, in spite of being um, very progressive many, many communities, coastal areas, affluent communities that just do not want any more housing. They are very pro-environmentalist. So they are also anti-growth in that sense. And housing is just something that they don't want to see. I mean, there are are many reasons why people are anti-housing, right? It could be from, you know, just simply not wanting to have people of color coming into your communities when you're building affordable housing. But there are also others that are just simply anti-growth. They don't want any more congestion. We have a very big problem of uh, car pollution in California. So for many reasons, but especially the cost of labor and materials, the issue becomes greater and greater. And that's where we are right now.
1: I want to ask you about one particular Program in a second, uh, the Home Key program that y'all have launched, uh, because it sounds very innovative and sounds like it could help you make progress uh, toward meeting that shortfall. Uh, But I want to first just uh, delve into a little bit of your experience. Before you served at HUD, you actually worked in the D.C. government. And so you've seen these issues from the federal level, the local level, and now the state level. When you think about this enormous task that California has in front of it, uh, what do you think that each level needs to do better at to help solve the problem?
3: I always say, you know, in order to achieve this goal of 2.5 million homes in roughly the next eight years, you need three key ingredients. You need capital. Uh, California, actually, the governor and the state legislature put in place the largest investment in housing ever in the history of the state, $22 billion last year for investments in the next three years, especially in affordable housing. You're also going to need the right policy climate. So when you're talking about my work previously in local government, you need to have local governments where housing approvals continue to um, uh, to i mean when you when you think of housing approvals, those happens at the local level, so you need to have the local policy climate to create the housing that is needed. but in the state of California, we've done a lot of changes in the state law to incentivize localities to create more housing through sort of streamlining measures, reducing fees that the state charges for creating housing, just just a lot of, you know, fair housing is part of that as well. Just a lot of policy that are pro-housing. Biden administration has proposed something similar at the national scales, but localities and states have to act first. And third, accountability. Even if you provide all of these incentives to localities to create more housing at the local levels, many of them refuse Because of their exclusionary behaviors and practices, attitudes continue to be a problem. So you do need to hold them accountable for not creating their fair share. And that's part of what we're doing here in the state.
1: Well, and let's zero in for a second on the HomeKey program. Uh, so as I understand it, HomeKey is this like innovative partnership between uh, Los Angeles County and the state of California to purchase and rehabilitate hotels and motels and then convert them into permanent long-term housing for people who are experiencing homelessness. Talk to me about that program
3: and how it's going. When COVID has started, when you have a state that, has a population, a homeless population of nearly 200,000 people. The majority of them spending every night sleeping on their bridges and near uh, rail tracks. You have this, you know, uh, incredible, uh, unprecedented public health emergency. You had to ensure that you acted quickly to move those people to avoid the uh, increasing infection rates in the homelessness population to non congregate settings. So, we immediately created Project Room Key that was about moving more than 45,000 people to more than 16,000 motel and hotel rooms that we leased with the help of the federal government. With that in mind, we thought, well, why don't we create a program? thanks to the, again, the influx of federal financial assistance to actual purchase, acquire hotels and motels, rehabilitate them quickly, and uh, house permanently. Uh, The incredible number of homeless persons that we have, and that's Project Homekey. We spent nearly a billion dollars in record time, record cost. In six months, we created 6000 new units of internet and permanent housing at a fraction of what it costs to create a new unit of housing. In the state of California, the exorbitant cost, you you create a new unit of housing, two-bedroom apartment, $600,000, $700,000 per unit. Homekey created every of those units for $130,000 average cost across the state. And we've been able to house as of now more than 10,000 people experiencing homelessness through HomeKey. Now, we're not done. The uh, legislature just appropriated an additional close to $3 billion to scale this program. Of course, we don't have all the hotels and motels that we had when the pandemic, you know, those assets were obviously undercapitalized. So we had the opportunity to buy those assets now. We're buying commercial facilities. We're buying... Uh, you know, run down uh, multifamily buildings. And we're using, you know, different types of other assets that are beyond hotels and motels to scale home key. So that's what the program is. It was just a, an innovation that came out of the worst public health emergency that we had. So kind of like a, a silver bullet, right? Out of this tremendous problem we have, we just created a program that was innovative. And now it's being replicated in other states across the country.
2: Gustavo, you you took over uh, this role right as the pandemic was starting. Obviously, that had to be a a unique situation for you. Um, But can you tell us a little bit about how the pandemic changed your approach to housing in particular, you know, what you took from your days uh, at HUD and how that informed your work, you know, responding to the pandemic and the housing crisis in California?
3: Well, you're right, Sawyer. I moved uh, to California in May of 2020, right as things were really accelerating. When I came to the state, um, everything was basically shut down. We had to act quickly to address Project Roomkey, the program that I just mentioned, to move, you know, as many people living on the streets to non-congregate settings. One of the things that became crystal clear is how disproportionate the pandemic was affecting people of color, people, you know, those experiencing homelessness, people with extremely low income. With the massive shortage that you have in the state of California, if you lose your housing, if you're very, very low income, very poor working Californian, it's going to be very hard for you to find housing where to live. So we deployed the largest rental relief program in the country with more than $5 billion so that. People that lost jobs or incomes as a result of COVID could uh, pay the debt that they had on the on the rent that was was unpaid. Just an effort to protect people from eviction and make sure that we would have Californians keeping their, their affordable home. And so just uh, the approaches one with urgency, one ensuring that all the programs that we deploy with, again, I have to emphasize a lot of support from the federal government to make these programs v- viable, will be focused on those that were the most disproportionate by the pandemic's tribal communities, the working poor people in rural California, essential workers, farm workers, health workers, um, people of color, just, just an emphasis on meeting uh, those uh, disproportional impacts of COVID as, as we were rolling out these programs.
1: And Gustavo, you, you talked about the HomeKeep program. Uh, let me ask you about another initiative that y'all have launched called the Home Accelerator Initiative. Uh, how is that helping you to address uh, the homelessness and housing crisis?
3: We have to house people experiencing homelessness, but again, we have to also keep Californians that already have the ability to pay for an affordable place to call home, to need to create more units for those that earned very low income. So the California Housing Accelerator is sort of a complementary program to programs like Homekey, focused on extremely low income units that thanks to again, federal financial assistance and the state dollars combined. We're just uh, taking shovel-ready projects that have been in limbo for two or three years because of lack of capital, because of increasing cost, because we don't have enough support um, in terms of bonds and tax credits, but they are shovel-ready. They're ready to go. Uh, we've, t- we've taken nearly $2 billion and Uh, replace the equity of those projects that otherwise would obtain tax credits and creating more than 3,400 new units of housing. Again, record time, 180 days, six months construction timeframes to start for, again, nearly 3,500 units of affordable homes for for very low-income families. So another Sort of quick response it's all ties to my first answer of just the creation of millions, you know, 2.5 million units of housing that we need to create across the income spectrum with a focus on equitable outcomes between now and 2030.
1: Um, you worked a lot over the years on fair housing, and California is the most diverse state that there is in our country. What is the state of fair housing in California what do you see in terms of getting to the point where no matter what somebody looks like, what their background is, that they're able to experience the same kind of housing opportunity as anybody else?
3: Secretary, we saw this similar answer to what we saw when you were Secretary of HUD. I mean, farther in fair housing is something that is already codified in law. It's codified in the Fair Housing Act of 1968, it's codified here in the state law. Um, we promulgated Uh, rules that incentivize better planning to dismantle patterns of segregation, create more inclusive housing across the country. And the same types of principles exist here in California. What is needed, because segregation persists, um, what is needed is the right enforcement, right? And the ability for the state to go to localities, say, okay, we're going to incentivize you, we're providing you information so that you plan to create housing in a way that is inclusive, that access people of all backgrounds, people with disabilities, and that you create a housing that promotes choice, not just in areas of high poverty, especially affordable housing that continues to be built in areas of disinvestment and high poverty, but really across your jurisdiction, also in areas that um, where people uh, typically, you know, reject the notion of creating more housing. You need to plan for that. And when you plan and we see over the course of the year that we are not, you are not building the housing according to uh, the notion or furthering fair and inclusive housing, then the state needs to just the same way that HUD needs to enforce those principles that are in in law uh, are not complied with. And typically that means taking away you know, um uh, uh, and federal dollars uh, because of lack of compliance and maybe even, you know, going after them in in a court of law. So uh, it is enforcement what we need in order to ensure that more fair housing, more inclusive, fair and equitable housing is in place in our country.
2: So, Gustavo, you mentioned a couple of times um, how helpful the federal government has been as a partner in responding to the pandemic, you know, with, with resources for housing, uh, but housing legislation in Congress has been stalled, you know, for years, uh, and, and so many of these important programs that you all rely on have, have been sort of left in the lurch as, as Congress has not uh, adequately funded them. What, what do you see as the most important investment or the most important funding stream uh, to help facilitate your work uh,
3: that Congress could invest in right now? Many things. I mean, the list is long. But if you give me just one, one answer, that will be vouchers vouchers which are these really really important instruments really that facilitate that people that are low income can go and seek housing and pay a, a portion of uh the rent in housing um we don't have enough of it we we have you know this is uh, as you know is notorious this is a statistic that uh, we have only one out of five people that are in need of public assistance for housing actually obtain it. And for the most part, that is just the inability of Congress to move forward with the investments that are needed in creating uh, more voucher capacity. Our Homekey program that I, we just talked about, you know, you create these thousands and thousands of units. The housing is there for the people, but they come in, the housing needs to be affordable and sustainable for low working families for many years. But the voucher is going to facilitate that, is going to be able to uh, maintain, and it's not just one family, you know, the family goes in there with a voucher, they move out of this cycle of poverty, they move on, but you continue to have that kind of support, that kind of assistance for low working families over many, many years. And so that's what we need now. We need also investments in infrastructure to create more housing, we need investments in, um, in just, you know, the capacity for housing stock. But we are taking care of that. We just need the support of the federal government on the rental assistance and home ownership assistance. Because also this is really about not just rental housing, but also affordable home ownership housing over many years. And so vouchers will be absolutely my first my first choice when it comes to the type of federal financial support that is most needed at the moment.
1: Oh, Gustavo, it's always a delight to get to chat with you. Thank you for the work that you're doing, and thank you for filling us in on California's approach to ending the housing and homelessness crisis. Uh, We hope that other states are listening.
3: I appreciate the invitation, thank you. And thanks again to our sponsor for this episode,
1: the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which remains focused on housing affordability.
0: Hey, Lemonada listeners, we want to hear from you. You know we love our sponsors for a ton of reasons, but one of the main ones is that they help us keep the lights on. And there's a really easy way that you can help us draw new advertisers and hear ads for things you're most interested in. Filling out our quick anonymous survey at lemonadamedia.com survey. By just answering a few questions, you can help us find new brands to connect with and also share feedback about show content you'd like to see across the network. And to sweeten the deal, once you've completed the survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Visa gift card. I promise the survey is short and sweet and will help us play ads you don't want to skip and also keep bringing you content you love. Just go to LemonadaMedia.com survey. People love to pretend that there are simple formulas for living your best life now. Eat this and you won't get sick. Manifest it and everything will work out. But there are some things you can choose, and some things you can't. And it's okay that life isn't always getting better. I'm Kate Bowler, and on Everything Happens, I speak with kind, smart, funny people about life as it really is. Beautiful, terrible, and everything in between. Let's be human together. Everything Happens is available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome back to Our America. Well, this episode is the last episode of Our America Season 2, and I can't believe that uh, we're already at something like 30 episodes this season, and we had a great lineup of guests. I hope that all of our listeners enjoyed them from our first guest in our special episode with Cecile Richards to talk about what was happening at that time uh, and the... Uh, speculation about what the Supreme Court might do on the issue of abortion. Wow, look how that has played itself out. Uh, to great conversation with Senator Warren and Representative Ayanna Presley. My brother revisited us during this season two, uh, and you know throughout all of this, Sawyer and I have really aimed to dig into those issues that people are hearing about every single day, but oftentimes in 30-second sound bites or two-minute clips on cable news, and to give them some context and to hear from the voices of people who are helping to shape the politics and policy behind them. And uh, we also wanted to keep uh, the, the heart of this show that we established in season one, which to, was to focus on the challenges, um, really the plight of the most vulnerable people uh, in our nation. And I think we achieved a lot of that. Really, that decision is up to you and the listener. I hope that you think we achieved that. Um, when we started in season one, we had a different format. Uh, it was more sort of long-form uh, interview, but just a, a different way of approaching it. I really enjoyed this season, and a lot of that was because of my co-host Sawyer Hackett. Uh, y'all, I, y'all probably saw, you know, how well prepared Sawyer was, and he brought. Uh, a lot of the facts and also the context of this. And so Sawyer, thanks a lot for joining me on this season. I think you really livened it up and uh, helped educate all of us and put some perspective on it too.
2: Yeah, it's been a it's been a lot of fun uh, joining you as a co-host, and I think you know you and I have conversations daily just about politics and our just rants and raves about what's going on. So it's been good just to put a microphone in front of us and and just record and talk about the news and you know like you said just keep that focus on vulnerable communities and and you know the issues of the day while also talking to some you know fantastic guests like Elizabeth Warren and Cecile Richards and Michael McFaul, uh, you know Beto O'Rourke, Mark Elias, just so many fantastic guests. So it's been really great uh, a great season um i think i i'll say you know just an improvement on the first season you know it, it just gotten better and better as we've gone on so um i've had a, i've had a lot of fun and thanks for
1: thanks for having me no thank you and you know when we kicked this uh, podcast off in september of 2020 we had just been through the most intense few months about six months of the COVID pandemic um, and I thought then and I really believe now that um, this was a time when all of us should have seen and I ho- I think have seen that we're all in it together as a country, that uh, folks are more interconnected to each other than we even realized before this pandemic, that what happens to that farm worker in the field, what happens to the nurse on the night shift, what happens to that person person working in a meat packing plant, um, what happens to that firefighter uh, or EMS paramedic, um, that it affects all of us. And that as a country, we have to find a way to make sure that the concerns of all of those folks, of people of every background and every walk of life, make it into our national conversation and more importantly, make it into our national Policy and the policies that happen at every level, not just in Washington, but in state legislatures and also in city halls and in school boards across the country. Uh, that's what I hope that we've gotten out of this, and you know, the small role that I hope that our podcast has played is to help um, help inform and, in some ways, hopefully help galvanize and motivate people to be more involved or to get involved if you haven't been as involved. I mentioned earlier in the show a clip from two days ago where uh, Rick Scott, the Senator of Florida, being asked a direct question about whether he would advise his colleagues to disavow white supremacy, refused to answer that question, did not do the easy thing. And the thing that, gosh, in years past, it wouldn't even have been a, a question about disavowing this. There, there are people of every background, whether they're white or black or Latino or Asian American, Native American, anybody that recognize how crazy that is, that we're in a very scary place in our country right now, and that we can't afford to go further down this path without serious damage to our democracy, to our collective experiment of the United States of America that in so many ways has been beautiful and a uh, great sign of human progress and so i hope that as we end this season that you are more motivated than ever before uh, to get out there and to participate in our democracy to vote to make your voice heard to have an impact on the future of your life your children's lives and the lives of others so that not only do we turn away from this scary place that one party in our country is in but that we help to unify it if we can do that in the years to come Uh, all of us have a role to play in doing it Uh, that's my hope for our listeners that we each find our way of doing it thank you so much for listening uh for being a part of season two and i just want to close by thanking all of our staff our producers, our team who helped put this together, they do a fantastic job day in and day out. I mean, like 90% of the work is because of them. And, uh, you know, the podcast is what it is with the quality that it has because of their work. And I want to say thank you to each and every one of them. Take care. America is a Lemonada Media original. Our producer is Jorge Olivares, with executive producers Jessica Cordova Kramer, Stephanie Whittleswax, and Julian Castro. Mix and scoring is by Ivan Kurayev. Music is by Xander Singh. Please help others find the show by rating and reviewing wherever you listen, and follow us across all social platforms at Julian Castro, at Sawyer Hackett, and at Lemonada Media. If you want more, our America. Subscribe to Lemonada Premium only on Apple Podcasts.
0: What do weddings, Instagram, and toxic relationships all have in common? They take your money and you can't get it back. 16 grand, somewhere in there. Gone. There's no legal solution for the fact that you married an asshole welcome to the dough i'm x Mayo. we're diving into the stories surrounding the moolah baby the good the bad and the unexpected yeah we are talking about it all the dough is out now wherever you get your podcasts.
3: hey friends it's megan trainer
2: and her big bro ryan trainer
1: and her husband daryl sabara
3: each week on our podcast working on it We
0: share behind-the-scenes stories and bring you into our hilarious and heartfelt conversations, and sometimes with amazing guests.
2: We tackle everything from navigating Hollywood to mental health, to Megan becoming a mother, Daryl becoming a father, and so much more.
0: We'll get into the nitty-gritty of our lives and leave no detail behind. Prepare to laugh, cry, and hopefully learn something new.
3: Listen to new episodes out every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts.